Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to Burn by Books, the book's podcast for people with a clinical book-buying diagnosis. I'm your host, Chris Holmes. This week's show features a fabulous interview with Miranda Popke, the author of one of my favorite books of the year, Topics of Conversation. She's been compared to Rachel Cusk, Sally Rooney, Sheila Hetty, and other major innovators of the novel form. This is her debut novel, and you're going to want to read everything she writes in the future. Let's jump into the interview. Welcome back to Burned by Books. It is my great pleasure to welcome Miranda Popke. Miranda is the author of the novel Topics of Conversation, a book that I read at one of the bleakest moments of the past year and which brought me tremendous solace. Topics of Conversation lives in the worried mind of its narrator, who marks 17 years of her life in 10 discrete conversations mostly with women, while living up and down the state of California. The form of the novel, Women Sharing Private Stories, is as old as the novel genre itself. This is the terrain of Austin and the Brontes, and more recently, Rachel Cusk and Jenny Ophel. But it is the mood of topics of conversation that distinguishes it as an innovation of the form. In the face of ever-proliferating expectations— limits in truth for her career, her relationships, her desire, the narrator offers refusal, not a moralistic righteousness, but a Bartleby-like refusal to take up the mantle of womanhood in any way that would be socially sanctioned. Her conversations with friends and acquaintances are catalysts to rejecting grand narratives about the arc of a woman's life particularly at a moment in which the millennium-long predatory behavior of men seems finally to have been captured by the society's moral imagination. With a friend's mother, she hears stories of infidelity and the lack of language to describe non-sanctioned forms of marriage. In another conversation, she learns of her own mother's violation of boundaries with a therapist— And yet, in rejection, there is not necessarily a pleasing form for the narrator or her interlocutors. The shape that desire might give her life remains elusive to her. Might she be happy being the object of another's desire, shaped, molded into a form not requiring her agency? Or is there a form of autonomy that might satisfy a woman who is many things at once, few of which are recognizable to her? At times in the novel, the sheer absence of models for living with complicated desires expresses itself in acts of shapeless rage, pissing in a teapot 
and saving it for a husband after the divorce or submitting to S&M sex in a hotel. At different moments, the expression is abstracted, intellectual, listening to the story of Norman Mailer's unquenchable appetites or of the very different appetites of a pregnant woman who leaves her husband before the birth to become a quote-unquote actual lesbian. These private discussions to which we are audience come to us with an intimacy of storytelling that is enrapturing. Topics of conversation, as one reviewer put it, is a slender volume with the power of lightning. It is an apt description of the experience of reading the novel, the experience of having been struck by something true and powerful, dangerous and electric. It is, as one character describes, the horrifying freedom of realizing that, quote, there is no reason, no one has a plan for you, and your life doesn't have a soundtrack. It's just a series of split-second decisions and coincidences and demographics. And for the reader and the narrator, this is a realization that will not solve any problems, but merely, and perhaps miraculously, asks for more conversation. Welcome, Miranda. Thank you so much. Um, that was uh, that was a very thorough and uh, flattering introduction. I'm, I'm uh, blushing a little bit over here. <laughs> well, um, we're really happy to have you on the podcast. And I was hoping we could start by having you read um, a paragraph from the section Santa Barbara 2016. It's towards the end of the novel, but I find it evocative, a distillation of much of what seems to interest you in the novel. Yeah, um, it's uh, it's a pleasure to get to read this this first section um, because, as you as you mentioned, it's quite quite near the end of the novel. Um, so it's not one that I've read aloud maybe ever. So. Um, Thanks for, thanks for picking it, and I'll just I'll, I'll jump in. Great. I tell people, she paused. When I tell people, if I tell people, I tell them I gave the baby up. We were, she and I, swimming. People assume I mean adoption if I don't bother to correct them. Her shoulders rose and then fell. It's not a lie, not exactly. We'd met earlier that day, our carts colliding at a supermarket. After all, she said, I did. Another pause. I did give the baby up. This woman, I don't remember her name. What I do remember, it was dark. The body of water in which we swam was the Pacific, and though the water was cold, I was not uncomfortable. The water pressing against my body and my body pressing back, pressing through. The experience was one of minor but continual triumph of resistance again and again overcome. Yes, my primary feeling was one of pleasure, sustained pleasure, that is, luxury. I rolled the word luxury from the back to the front of my mouth, the underside of my tongue smooth and slick sliding against the roof of my mouth. Also, we were both naked, both drunk. If this does not explain the situation, perhaps it may explain something about the kind of woman who would find herself in it. Often when I tell this story, as I have been encouraged to do in therapy and in group and by my mother, I say that I picked her, this nameless woman, up. Not because it makes more sense, though it does. Because that phrase, I picked her up, my listeners find it provocative. Provocative as in to provoke, as in to provoke interest. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Conversation is flirtation. Tease out enough rope and the listener, she'll hang on your every word. Though it's true, usually I am the one left hanging. This woman, for example, she certainly had me on the line. Why is it that people tell me things? I think it is because I like, liked to drink, and I am good at keeping my face quiet. Also because I ask questions. What I had asked her, do you have any kids? This is female socialization, that is, the desire to be everywhere approved of, carried to its logical extreme. Thank you so much. I picked this section because it draws out the pleasures of the novel for me, namely the ambient mood of conversations between women and the narrator's play with language, the rolling about with luxury and provoke and provocative, picked up and picked out. And at the same time, it glances upon the leitmotif of the novel, 
the demands made of women's bodies and minds. How did you come up with the conceit of a novel built of conversations between women separated by time and geography? So that's a great question because I I think of the of the conceit as coming to me rather than as my creation and and I'll explain a bit more. I began writing this novel in the fall of 20 17 and the first bit that I wrote that appears in any sort of recognizable form in the novel is Los Angeles 2011 and I wrote that section very quickly and I wrote it following the narrator's voice in my head I know that it can be quite annoying to hear an author say something like oh, this narrator's voice came to me in my head and I just followed where it led. <laughs> and I'm not going to pretend that I was um, sort of overtaken by some, that I was, that was overtaken by something outside of me. But I do think that a lot of thinking around the subjects that the novel touches on and a lot of anger around the subjects that the novel touches on that I hadn't been able to express coalesced into a voice and what I was able to do was test out whether various directions in which I wanted to take the voice and various phrases that I want to put in the voice's mouth, so to speak, hmm. whether whether they worked. It was very helpful to have that voice as a as a test, as um as a way to check and see, you know, am I am I doing this correctly? If it doesn't sound right in her voice, then then no, the answer is no. But so I, I wrote that first section, and then I wrote the the section that takes place at the art museum, which is um, San Francisco, two thousand ten. And then I wrote um, the section that now appears in the novel is Ann Arbor, two thousand two, I believe. Yes. Um, and I thought that that was going to be a three part short story. Uh, I had been having a great deal of trouble writing more traditional short stories. Um, I was in an MFA program in a at the time, and I had been trying to write as, you know, I was being asked to write a great deal, and I was producing work that was not especially interesting to me and was not especially interesting mm. to my peers. Um, mm -hmm. And I say that really, truly not as a knock on myself or or especially not on my colleagues in the in the program, um, which is a wonderful, wonderful MFA program. It's at Washington University in St. Louis. Everyone was very generous with me, um, and everyone was really trying to help me get to a place where I could write something that I was really interested in. But the, the fact is that when you're not particularly interested in what you're writing, it shows on the page. And for some reason, I had not been able to get past the wall that I had myself constructed that was preventing me from really plumbing the depths of the themes that I was interested in. When I tried to write something more traditional that also was not clicking, I was, I was definitely holding something back. And I think when I, when I figured out just by writing this woman's voice that I could dispense with certain narrative forms and conventions, I was then allowing myself to really get down beneath, as I said, this wall that I had constructed um, that was preventing me from really expressing any kind of real emotion on the page. Uh, it was funny. I was, I was writing these stories before, before the fall of 2017. I was writing these stories that I thought were quite angry, but no one was seeing it in the writing. Hmm. Um, and I think that I was doing a lot of dissimul dissimulating with, with jokes, but putting it all in the voice of the narrator that allowed me to tell the joke and then admit to the fact that I was telling the joke or that she was telling the joke in order to dissemble, in order to protect herself. And then that allowed me to go a step, a step further. Um, yeah, you get one of the things that, you know, the, that I quite love is the, the fact that this is a voice driven novel. I mean, it, it certainly has lots of plot elements, um, but it isn't, as you say, structured around um, 
a, a an arc of a character's transformation as much as it's structured around a internal intellectual dialogue that's both a dialogue the narrator has with herself um, and a dialogue that she has with intimates, not intimates, um, people that she meets. And it does incorporate a kind of uh, a dark humor that is both quite funny, um, but that also then asks you to pause and and question why in particular you took away from that moment something funny. Yes. Um, it's, it's funny. I think, I think what you're describing is what I describe to myself as kind of a cheat. Um, for me, the writing of fiction is very, very difficult. So I'm always trying to cheat. I'm always trying to find ways to do the thing I want to do without putting myself in so much um, psychological distress that I can't move forward. Mm-hmm. So the ability to tell the joke and then to tell the the truth of the joke, the the feelings behind the joke, that was a cheat. And this this um this conceit, um, the conversations between women separated by time and geography, as you say, that was also a cheat. Um I would be you know, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention um, Rachel Cusk as an obvious um, as an obvious inspiration. Also, uh, Zabald, I had read mm-hmm. in the in the months previous um, Rings of Saturn, and that is a novel where I, I remember actually quite clearly. I can remember where it is on the page. Uh, there's a moment where there's a narrative handoff in the middle of a sentence where the narrator switches from the narrator of the novel to the narrator of a story that the narrator is telling. And it's a trick I do, I think (laughs) less elegantly into less startling effect in that Los Angeles, 2011 section. Um, But I was sort of stunned by Zabel's ability to hand the narrative off in so unobtrusive a way. Hmm. And my issue with sort of traditional three act structure in, in stories, I mean, it's also an issue with plot. I, I don't have a, 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 a spectacular imagination. I'm not constantly thinking up. I think that there is a kind of author who is constantly imagining um, different scenarios and how people might behave in them and sort of trying to spin those scenarios out. Could this be a novel? Could this be a short story? And that's just not the way my brain works. Getting around plot by just having people talk to each other and then, Oh, we're, we've jumped a few years. I, I guess, I guess we just won't, we won't really talk about what's happened in between. Um, that was, that was another cheat that really allowed me to touch on a number of situations and a number of ideas and a number of characters that I sort of wouldn't have been able to corral hmm. into a more traditional plot. Um, so it's interesting. I think I think that this is the case for a lot of of authors, um, but I know it's the case for me that the, the things that are sort of distinctive and perhaps successful about the work are signs, at least in part, of a, a weakness. Um, and in this case, it's you know I I can't plot a novel, so instead I wrote a series of conversations. (laughs) Well, I would say, I I mean, one thing that I've sort of noticed about the novel in the last 10, 15 years is that there is, are are sort of two tracks loosely in, in what used to be called literary fiction. And that is one track is becoming highly, highly sort of plotted and drawing on old, what we think of as sort of genre forms um, to have conceits that are incredibly elaborate and involve like intense plotting and then another track that is a um kind of an intellectual philosophical um breed of novel that brings in plot by way of conversation by way of thinking through particular situations about the world about society and language and culture i wouldn't call either of them you know uh, a, a kind of grand departure from the novel, because certainly, you know, if we go back to those earliest epistolary novels, they're just like, I 
wanted to write a letter to my mom about how crappy the guy I they made me marry is. Um, and, you know, that's a very, you know, a, a very dialogue and thinking driven thing that's not plotted in the way we think of as a contemporary plotting. Um, but it's still very much in the novel's tradition. So I like both of these trajectories and yours I wouldn't describe as failing in plot or feeling like it has trouble with plot, just that it wants to borrow from that particular tradition and and sees itself in that kind of Cuskian. Can we say that now? Since Rachel Cusk is so so fancy and famous, a Cuskian um, kind of novel, which I I happen to enjoy that kind very much. Yes, I think it's funny. I have not brought this up in other interviews because it didn't seem shockingly did not seem important until sort of you mentioned the epistolary novel, but I, I had been reading, I didn't read all of Pamela because Pamela is very long, <laughs> um, but I had read a, a bit of Pamela uh, right around the time that I was writing this. So yes, there's some of Pamela in there um, as well. And when you're talking about the sort of two different directions the novel has gone in, um, you can you can see the sort of Cuskian tradition versus the or the the developing Cuskian path versus the sort of hyper realism the, or the 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 hyper um, the hyper plotting of someone. I think Zadie Smith would be a good example of mm-hmm. someone who does quite a bit of plotting, um, and I love Zadie Smith. Um, I think her novel N.W. actually is is an influence on my on my novel as well. But the idea of creating so many events for characters to experience, I don't know what it is, what it is about me or what it says about me, but it just, the idea of it exhausts me. I I thrill to read it, but the idea of creating just a series of events and a series of experiences for my character to, to go through in something like real time. I just, I, I, it makes me want to take a nap. <laughs> um, well, I, so yeah, when I'm thinking about Zadie Smith's like white teeth or something like that, the just amount of of intellectual energy and the kind of gestation of those um, plotted conceits, just it does seem tiring, but wonderful. The results are incredible. Um, I wanted to move to uh, one of the sections, San Francisco 2010, opens at a museum that's running an exhibition by a Swedish video artist whose work examines female pain. And female pain is is substantive to to almost everything that the narrator is talking about in the novel. And you write, um, quote, by female pain, I mean female subjugation and exploitation and humiliation. By female pain, I mean her pain. She makes in her heart, in her art, a spectacle of herself. The exhibit itself is kind of equal parts horrifying and comically absurd, but it is the catalyst to a conversation between the narrator and her friend, specifically about non-monogamous women. It doesn't feel like the narrator buys into the performance artist dramatization of women's pain, but we're left with a sense that there needs to be more visible performances of women that capture a range of feelings. Does Do you think art kind of takes a pass on the complications of women, on complicated women? I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. And I'll, I'll, I'll preface all of this by saying that my knowledge of visual art and of, of performance based art is very narrow. Um, and I think my narrator is responding to the art that she is seeing from that narrow perspective that, that we share and what she's responding to is, or what she's experiencing, is I think a very human feeling, which is, why is this person's pain worth looking at? Mm-hmm. What makes mm-hmm. her so special that she might be allowed to exhibit her own pain and call it art? I think that because women have been foregrounded in in art for not as long as men have been foregrounded in art, there's a scarcity thinking that attends 
uh, a woman's, well, I'll say that attends my own or that can attend my own evaluation of another woman's art. The thought, if this woman is making art out of her pain, does that mean I'm not allowed to because then it's already been done? Mm-hmm. And I think that that kind of scarcity thinking is is one that we have to work our way out of. Um, actually, um, it's funny that you that you bring this up because I just read a very good um, a very good tiny letter um, of all things, a very good newsletter by the the writer Brandon Taylor. Mm. Uh, oh, I who, love his novel Real Life. Yeah. Yes. Precisely. Um, and he has this really wonderful um, newsletter. Um, and he wrote about um, uh, black horror. Um, and some of some of what he was writing about in this newsletter um, is this this sort of scarcity thinking um, when it comes to work by black artists. Um, and I think that that the scarcity thinking that he is describing in that context also applies or can apply to um, work by female artists as well. So when my narrator is looking at this display of female pain, you know, the, the, the work that I invented for her to mock is, is a bit mockable. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's a reason that I'm not a visual artist and it's because the ideas that I I might conceive of are pretty silly, um, in that arena. But I think what she's really reacting to is why does this woman get to imagine herself as the subject? Mm -hmm. Um, because my narrator is having a really hard time imagining herself as the subject. She is much more comfortable imagining herself as the object and she's unhappy with that, but she doesn't know what to do. And so she's having, again, this very human reaction, but um, uh, a, a limiting reaction, which is if this woman has done it, then I can't mm-hmm. because she's taken up that space. Yeah, I think, and in in it, it's interesting that you mention um, Brandon Taylor because I I think that question in publishing um, writ large, especially around um, writers of color and the the question of who's allowed to take up that one space. Okay, you can be the the black horror writer, or you can be the Latina Gothic novelist, um, and then we already have one of those quote unquote. Um, is this kind of colossal problem for publishing that just now I think is really being confronted in a in a real way? But similarly, as you say, in this um, broad way, thinking about women um, trying to have uh, a kind of understanding of the value of their pain, or even beyond pain. I mean, I think this novel deals with a lot of nuanced um, emotions that aren't allowed to register for women in 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 contemporary society and so art seems to be possibly one way that they could have a life and yet um, whether or not they're valuable enough to um, find themselves in an artwork becomes this real kind of nagging question i think for the narrator yes and and to be clear uh the the situation when it comes to and i'll just speak to literature because that's the area i know best um you know generally white women not having a problem finding right. a place in, no, that's true. In, in the literary landscape. Um, you know, one of the many article studies that I could cite is not that long ago, the New York Times, I believe, did a, a survey of the big five publishing houses and, um, you know, over a period of years looked at all of the, the books that they had published and 5% were mm, behind God. authors of color. And it was, you know, it was shocking but it was also not surprising, and it and it did um, highlight, I think, what, exactly what you're talking about. I wanted to talk about the relationships in in topics of conversation, and many of which might be called illicit. Um, there are numerous kinds and varieties of affairs, um, unequal power dynamics. Uh, useless partners, abusive partners, the wrong kind of kink, etc. Why was it important for your narrator and her discussants to tell each other stories about these taboo, illicit relationships? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And I think my best answer is that is both what was of interest to me at the time and also what 
scared me the most when I was writing about it. The question of what if the thing that I want is the wrong thing? Or is the thing that is going to hurt me? Or is the thing that I've been told to want? And I was told so early in my life that I don't recognize the desire as foreign anymore. I think it's my own. Mm. And whenever something is on my mind and also is triggering a sort of fear reaction or an anger reaction, that's when I know I need to go deeper into it. So I, I think that is the place where the women in the novel are, are coming from as well. Um, this sort of dawning realization that these unequal, these, these relationships in which the power imbalance is pronounced, those are not the exception, or they, they have not across, I don't even want to say the whole of human history, across the last 50 years. Those have not been the exception, they have been the rule. Mm. And we're now, we're just now getting to the point where they might not be anymore. And what could it mean if seeking that relationship out feels pleasurable or feels safe? It's not a desire that I like in myself, but it's a desire that I certainly have had. And I wanted to explore where might that have come from and what could be done about it? What kinds of thinking and talking and what kinds of art could get us out of a place where we are still wanting the things that society used to tell us we should have and are sort of not, we're, we're not, we're not ready to take advantage of the freedom. I feel like I grew up just at the tail end of uh, the moment when it was expected that you as a woman would be in a relationship of some kind of, some kind of unequal relationship with a man. Mm -hmm. Um in popular culture. And I inhaled enough of that, that when I was a, a, a you know, a, a person, a woman in the world seeking sort of partnerships, romantico sexual partnerships, that was still the framework I was working with, even yeah. though there was a lot more freedom for me, in theory. Yeah, it's, I mean, one of the things that I think one of the complexities of topics of conversation that I that I really like is that there's both the sense that perhaps there's this freedom to make a different kind of choice about expression of desire and want, um, and also a clarity of thinking by the narrator and uh, her discussants that it might come with real repercussions that while there is seemingly this freedom just kind of burgeoning um, to choose something different, that there are a lot of systems that do not recognize those choices, that slap down those choices, that shame um, and outcast the people who make those choices. And so there's this combination of a kind of thrill at, oh, this person I'm talking to has made this different kind of choice, and maybe that's a choice I can make. And at the same time, recognizing, oh, like this may have gone very badly for this person. Yes, actually, the yeah, the moment that the the passage that you asked me to read at the beginning, the, the woman in that passage, the narrator is speaking to, she has left her husband and her child. This is now years in the past. Um, but she did a thing that men do, I would say not infrequently, which is have a child and then decide for whatever reason that they are not capable of staying in the child's life mm -hmm. as a parent. And that is a choice that I think is taboo for a woman to make. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. You know, my, my feeling on it is, you know, it, it's, it would, it would be really great if um, every child was brought into the world by um, a parent or parents who really wanted to dedicate themselves to, at least in part to the nurturing of this new human. Um, but that's just not always going to be the case. And as you say, yes, a, a woman will not be chased out of her village by refusing to parent her child um, in the year 2021. But I can't imagine a woman bringing up the fact 
that she abandoned even the word abandon. I can't imagine a woman bringing up the fact that she chose not to parent a child that she was economically able to provide for without her interlocutors expressing some kind of dismay, distress, um, yeah. judgment. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I agree. I, and that part of the novel is like, it's quite tense. Um, and I think it's tense because those words are not said aloud very often, either in, in kind of everyday practical life or in art. Um, or if they are, they're, you know, attached to some horrifying trauma rather than to a, to a choice. Um, and it's, uh, I, one of the novels that, kind of struck me as having so much kind of to do in in conversation with with yours is Lynn Steger Strong's Want which the you know, the name sort of tells you everything you need to know about it and it's the I think it's one of the great works of fiction about um what a woman is allowed to desire and what kind of you know either structures or agency she has in making that that choice. And I feel like that both yours and Strong's novels have this sense that ambition, sexual desire, drive to make art um, are inseparable from the guilt and sometimes shame associated with expectations for how and, and what a woman should be. I know that you appeared with her. Um, uh, did you have much of a chance to talk about this in each other's novels? And do you see um, topics of conversation as kind of in that same vein? Oh, absolutely. Um, and I'll say up front, I love that novel. Um, I admire that novel. Uh, Lynn is a friend. I'm actually... Uh, reading her newest novel and manuscript right now. Oh, um, that's exciting. It is. It really is exciting. Um, and I think absolutely our our novels are in conversation with one another because we are in conversation with one another, not infrequently. Um, <laughs> and I, I sent her a, I didn't, I don't think I sent her a full draft of the novel. I, I mean, I sent her a galley, but I think at some point I sent her that because I thought that she was a person who might respond to it and would then from that place of being in some sort of fundamental sympathy with what I was trying to drive at would also be able to tell me whether I was on the right path or not. I, I think what I admire so, so much about Lynn's novel is that she is she's really able to so much more easily than I am as a writer to get underneath. You know, we were talking earlier about there's the sort of dismissive joke level and then there's underneath the reason that you are telling the dismissive joke um the sort of protective barrier that you're creating with that joke between whatever it is that you really feel and what it is that you are wanting to project to the world as feeling um and i think lynn is just brilliant at getting right around the joke and getting straight to what it really what it really means to a character um she's she's much less afraid of emotion than I am. Um, and I, I really admire that. Uh, and I think her characters, as a result, are, you know, they're grappling really, really openly with their desires and what it means to voice them. Um, which, of course, my characters all are as well. And, and we're coming at it from slightly different angles. But I think this, the same thing obsesses us, which is mm -hmm. what are the consequences yes yeah yeah and the and and the mood is so different in the two books i mean want is has this kind of raw sort of torn open feeling to it as you say she can get to the emotion very quickly and very powerfully and at times your narrator is uh abstracted um can can be cool even when the topic is is on fire. Um, but there, I, I feel like that aspect of what are the consequences to this knowledge that there are other modes of desiring and being for a, a woman and how one might uh, go about it, even knowing those consequences. So I, I'm fascinated and horrified by the story of Norman Mailer's stabbing of his wife. And so I was thrilled, which is a weird word to use, but thrilled nonetheless to find that story woven into the chapter Los Angeles 2012. Adele, Mailer's wife at the time, 
is described by some as, quote, having asked for it, the stabbing, that is, by acting out, specifically by expressing a voracious and unbound sexual appetite. Why did you want to retell this story via a confessional between women? I'm... So it's interesting. I... The... The thing about that story and the way that it appears in the novels, it's, it's, it's embedded. Um, it's a YouTube video that the narrator watches. And the conceit of the video is that this older woman uh, who witnessed the stabbing is being interviewed by a man who's doing a documentary on Mailer. And the video is an outtake, which is to say that this is not an interview that appeared in the eventual documentary. Now, this is all fictitious. Um, I was I was actually pretty pleased that I, I had more than one reader sort of ask me whether the YouTube video existed or not. Um, it does not. And the documentary is fictional. And um, this woman is completely fictional. I kind of thought it was real. So you, you had me. Um, yeah, I mean, that gives me that gives me great pleasure. It's a, a sign, I think, of um, of some kind of success. Uh, so I think what's what's important to me about that woman telling her story is one, the story is seen by the narrator, but one gets the sense that not very many people have seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so it's uh, it's a confession or it's a it's a monologue that is for the public, but that the public or the the director in this case, who is um, acting as the as the gatekeeper for what it, what is it that the public will be interested in or not interested in, um, decides no 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 thank you this is not the story we need. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, what was important to me was the fact that it doesn't actually get any further than that outtake, which then disappears from YouTube. My my interest in Mailer and it's, you know, he's not very important anymore. And and I say this, I say this in part as a kind of self-criticism. You know, he's not a he's not a difficult target. Um, he is not widely respected as a novelist anymore. Um, he is not widely read, I think, as a novelist or as a sort of journalist, critic, provocateur, um, he doesn't have the acolytes that he used to have. Mm. So criticizing him, I think is, is pretty, it's pretty easy. There's a, there's a low risk. Um, it's, yeah, it's a bit like going after Updike. <laughs> it's not, no one, no one, not very many people are going to get mad at you. Some people are going to get mad at you, but not very many. <laughs> um, but it continues to startle me and maybe, this is my naivete speaking, but it just continues to startle me that he did nearly kill his second wife yeah. and everyone was totally cool with it. <laughs> and I'm thinking his second wife not cool with it because she died, but who found the cultural, you know, who found her own milieu so turned against her that she refused to testify against him and remained married to him until you know, a little bit after the attack, you know, you'd think your husband tries to kill you, almost kills you. I I think it does get underreported how close he came to killing her. Mm. It was a matter of inches, centimeters. You know, if he, if he stabbed a little differently, she, she might well have died. And, you know, she didn't divorce him immediately. um, Well, you need some time to reflect on stabbings. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, uh, I read her memoir and then I met, I read a, a piece of um, Mary Dearborn's Mailer biography. The quotes in there from his circle of friends are shocking. They're just writing letters to each other being like, oh, poor Norman, like this horrible woman. How did she ever trick him into marrying her? And now she got herself stabbed and that's going to be a problem. <laughs> And Mailer himself, to to his credit, I mean, small, small credit, but to his credit, he goes, you know, after the sort of trial is over, whatever, his first, his reentrance into literary society is at some party. And there's a there's a quote from him. And, and he says something along the lines of he thought that there would be a really cool reception, but 
the temperature was lowered by five degrees, not 50, five. Hmm. So yeah, people were 5% less likely to chat him up at a party after he stabbed and almost killed his wife. Um, and I think in that moment, even Mailer recognizes how wrong that is, which doesn't stop him from taking advantage, but mm-hmm. I think even recognizes how wrong that is. And I'll say that when I was writing this, I was thinking this was right around the, the time when, you know, in the wake of Harvey Weinstein allegations of sexual assault, rape, et cetera, sexual harassment, there was a wider reckoning that was beginning and that was touching the literary world, um, which is one where I've, I've worked. I, I worked in publishing for a number of years. And so there were conversations that were happening in New York that I was semi-privy to because uh, I still had friends in that world. I was living in St. Louis. As, as I said, I was physically far from these conversations, but would be looped in. I was, I was wondering, could a figure of Norman Mailer's stature, and by stature, I mean at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could someone of of a similar stature today get away with stabbing a a partner and then just be allowed to return to society? And I I think that the answer is no. Hmm. But I think that you could do a lot of things in private and be allowed to sneak back in to the literary scene. And again, it's not surprising, but it is disappointing. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, the the character of Mailer, as as represented in in your book, certainly reminded me of Harvey Weinstein, and the the fact that I didn't know until today that you were writing it in two thousand and seventeen. It kind of timing and the writing so coincides with, you know, the Me Too movement and the development of ways in which various kind of high-profile um, professions could take stock of the people that w- was sort of the the undeclared secret that there were monsters there within. And so you did see this in the literary world, certainly in the movies. Um, but as you say, there is this sense that, you know, there are ways that you can probably slink back into that um, into that world or go unnoticed when you have these outsized figures who take up a lot of a lot of room in that um, in that new attempt at taking responsibility. But I did feel like the <clears throat> the mailer moment in your book was a was a really brilliant way to sort of situate him in his moment and see. Oh my God, look at all you could do and all you could get away with and then really kind of sickeningly think it i mean yes no he didn't stab anyone but weinstein you know all but all but stabbed people and maybe he did and we just don't know about it um and so there was this sickening feeling for me that yes there's a difference but it's very slight it's a very textured difference um and and it's good obviously that there is some attempt to kind of make those people account now but the difference seemed small yes i think yeah i th- i think that again i don't think that a novelist of mailer's stature could now stab his wife at a party and be welcomed back um in, into a party and feel only five degrees of coolness. Mm-hmm. Um, in so in the in the interview in this YouTube video that that my narrator watches, the woman who was at the party describes leaving with her partner, who is a friend of Mailer's, and sort of walking. They walk together back to back to his apartment, and the whole time the they they don't really speak. Um, it's a very tense walk and. One of the things that her partner does say is it's something it's something like maybe it was an accident. He he in any case, he's trying to give Mailer the benefit of the doubt. He's trying to make excuses. Yeah. And that person is, I think, a person who still exists today hmm. um, who For would sure. or who would see or be privy to or be in in right right next to something really bad that that a man that they respected did and would say, well, but was it that bad? Mm-hmm. And would really be trying to offer excuses. Yeah, no, I agree that that person certainly exists in in too many too many numbers. 
So you have a section at the end of the novel called Works Unsighted, which lists what must be close to 100 books, films, TV shows, internet newsletters that influence the novel in some fashion. I'm interested both by the particular selections, which are as different as Ondace's The English Patient and Sheila Hetty's How Should a Person Be, and the function of an epilogue of what might be called mood amplifiers. So why these particular texts, some of which um, it's, it's very transparent how they influence, some of which more opaque, and what did you hope the reader's experience might be with this addendum to the novel? So I'll, I'll say, first of all, because, because the, the, the works not cited at the back are, um, you know, in the spirit of the works not cited, I, I want to say that um, the, the idea came from Azreen Vandervliet Alumi's um, Frock Healer, which has a, a similar sort of uh, section at the, at the very end of, of influences. And what was important to me about including that was I wanted to stress that my work is not original in, in the sense of, of sui generis. I think originality is something that is maybe overprized, especially in a, you know, quote unquote, debut novelist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's very true. And I don't think I'm, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to say I've never had an original thought, but I, you know, it's, I, maybe I've never had an original thought. I'm, I'm steeped. I'm steeped in popular culture. I'm constantly consuming work by others. And what is my brain doing? But, but sort of reconfiguring and remixing all of that into something that is, in some sense, my own, and in some sense, you know, not my own. Um, and I, I wanted to give. I wanted to be really explicit about that. Um, it was both about giving credit to these other texts that I'd responded to and that I valued and that I, you know, wanted to, to boost a bit, you know, um, part of the hope is that you, you comb through those works not cited at the back and you think, Oh, I'd never, you know, I've, I've heard of this novel or I've heard of this, um, this podcast and I haven't checked it out, but maybe I should now that, now that it's been mentioned in connection with this novel that I've, I've just enjoyed reading. Hmm. Um, but, but also I really did want to stress that my work emerges from engagement. And if there is anything, you know, quote unquote original, it is, it is still, it's, it's still going to have the traces of this other, these other texts. Um, I, I want I wanted to be sure that I was that I was claiming the right kind of authorship or claiming authorship in a way that felt correct to me. And and that for me at this particular moment meant naming as many of the influences that I could think of. Um, there's there's sort of like a the acknowledgement section starts with a little joke, sort of. Um, about how, you know, a first time novelist sort of sticks into uh, sticks into their novel, everything that they've been thinking about. <laughs> um, and it is a bit of a it's a bit of a joke, but it's also true for me. Um, this novel, slender as it is, <laughs> of, uh, you know, 20 years of me just thinking about this kind of stuff. <laughs> and I thought it would be I thought it would be kind of, and this is not, you know, I, I say this really, really just about my own work and this book in particular and not about anyone else's work. It's, it's not a directive. It's, it's self-reflective. But I, it felt like it would be untruthful in a way to pretend that this book emerged from my brain fully formed um, and, and wasn't so profoundly touched by all of these things that I'd been chewing on. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, the English patient, you, so you named two, the English patient read that when I was 13 um, and I watched the movie and I loved it. And it's a novel that I return to for 
the the pleasure of it sentences. Mm-hmm. It's one of the most beautifully crafted linguistic works of art, I think, in the English language. Yeah, absolutely. But also, I read it when I was 13, and it was the first, I think, capital L literary novel that I read that also had, like, a real, uh, like, a real horny sex scene in it. (laughs) (laughs) It also has necrophilia. I mean, so. Yeah, yeah. And, and, And that, you know, the sentences stuck with me, but so did that sex scene. Um, <laughs> and the and, movie has the tub sex. I mean, yeah. everybody remembers the tub sex. Yeah. And um, God, Ray Fiennes is really, really great looking in that movie. Um, but <laughs> He's very tan. He's, yeah. He's, uh, he's leathery. Um, he does look like someone who's been living in the desert for, for some time and, and hasn't heard about sunscreen. Um, <laughs> maybe they haven't invented it yet. Um, but yeah. And, and then how should a person be? I remember reading that, you know, and I now I can't remember when it came out, 2012, 2013. Um, and it reconfigured my understanding of what could a novel be? What could a contemporary novel be? Mm-hmm. Because it's the experience of reading an experimental novel or a novel that experiments with form from 30 years ago is different than the experience of reading a novel that experiments with form that is published at this moment. Um, and I think that the novel that experiments with form that is published at this moment, for me at least, opened a space of possibility mm-hmm. that reading experimental texts from earlier had not because the sense was, oh, well, in that particular context, in that particular literary moment, we were allowing authors to do this, but maybe we, we don't allow authors to do that anymore. Um, so I remember reading that, that novel and not loving every single bit of it, but feeling absolutely, re- really feeling provoked by it and really feeling like, oh, you can you can do this kind of thing Mm -hmm. and you can call it a novel and you can publish it and people might even quite like it. So those are just two examples, but I could go through every single one of those texts and tell you sort of why they're in it. The, uh, the thing that I love about novels and in particularly in particular, the contemporary novel is this sense that they are a warehouse for dynamic thinking that has happened, an event of thinking, um, and that you get to kind of crack open and kind of enter into this dynamic. And the the works not cited uh, essentially just kind of prolongs that act of thinking for me. And so I really appreciated and, and loved it as a kind of not as um, a tag on, but as um, something that continues the process of thinking that's happening. I would I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the cover of your book, which I really love. Um, it is it has this kind of Eastern European vibe. It's two bathing capped women sitting in a bathhouse pool and staring straight ahead, looking indomitable. Um, and it feels straight out of Wes Anderson's The Grand Budapest Hotel. You list him as a as an influence in the works not cited. Um, certainly his films are nothing like your novel tonally, um, and you are not a twee writer. Um, but were you influenced at all by his sort of micro-obsessive style? I think what I respond to about Wes Anderson's art, and I do respond to it, is the sense of control that he so clearly wants to exact over every single (laughs) element in the frame. And I'm, I'm the same about every single word I put on the page. It actually makes it really difficult for me to write. Unfortunately, Um, people talk a lot about the importance of shitty first drafts and I agree. And I wish it were helpful to me to write a shitty first draft But what happens when I write a shitty first draft is I go back and I read it and I decide that there's no point in revising it because I'm I feel so ashamed of the writer who Mm -hmm. put this (laughs) shitty first draft on the page that I feel that there is no hope for her or the thing that she was trying to write. Yeah, I recognize that impulse. (laughs) Yeah. So I really every when I write, and which is not to say that my first drafts are not shitty, they are. 
But I just, I have, it has to be the very best thing that I'm capable of putting on the page at that moment. Um, and so it takes me, you know, this is a, I have a, you know, I have a, <laughs> the phrase I'm tempted to use is straight job. Um, I have a day job, um, which as most jobs do requires me to write, a, a, you know, emails. And one of the problems I have in, in, in this job is that it takes me really too long to write emails because even when I write an email uh, <laughs> that is two sentences long, that is, you know, fulfilling a, a, some kind of purely bu bureaucratic function, I still want it to be a good email. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're going to have to stop that eventually. <laughs> I, I think I've finally left off the idea that I can that I can write a good email and still like maintain my sanity. Now I'm just now I even perhaps look for like the levels of atrocious um, in emails and and that can that can stand up for me. Um, but the yeah, I, I mean, I so much recognize that feeling um, that the the call out that we're supposed to be writing these um, these rough first drafts of things and terrible rough drafts is is antithetical when you really really love language and you want it to to do and and act in a certain way and a shitty version of that is not gonna do those things and so you can't see the potential you can't see um something coming forth and i think i mean you've described wes anderson like to a t i think that kind of gives him nightmares um that he can't control every last image and still and um and screenshot and it makes him both uh, an incredible director but also I, I mean i feel like he probably is unwell having to deal with that relationship to art but well, no i was just i was just gonna say yeah i think yeah i mean i wonder what his emails look like but i, I <laughs> I think it's another case of, and we were discussing this much earlier, but um, his his weakness is also his his strength. Mm -hmm. The thing that people respond to in his movies, the the aesthetics that are so characteristic, he I think it's a symptom of a desire for control that is in other ways sort of hampering him as a as a director. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I want to ask you before we leave off, um, you're clearly based on your works not cited and just your sort of novelistic impulse in general, an omnivore who sort of watches and, and reads broadly. And so I'm going to move beyond my sort of typical question about what you're reading to include things that you're watching. And I'm wondering if you would share with us what literature, film, television, kind of any media you like is making your life better now? And is there anything that we should be watching and reading that may have gone underappreciated? It's a great question. Um, I have been, I've been doing a thing that has actually worked out really well, which is I've been privileging um, uh, work by writers who are friends. <laughs> and oh, that's so nice. Uh, yeah, it turns out that my friend, my friends are, are are real real good at writing. Um, <laughs> so, some things that I've enjoyed recently: uh, David Bergerard's um, "The Epiphany Machine," which is from 2017, um, which I read recently. Um, it's quite good. Um, Alex Higley's "Old Open," um, and uh, this is a newer book. Uh, it's called "You," just the capital letter "U" up question mark by Katie D. Sabato, um, which came out from Melville house. Um, I think in, in March, maybe, um, those have all been, uh, real, real sources of, uh, narrative pleasure, um, and have expanded my, my mind in, in, in some important ways. Um, I'm excited. I don't know any of them. I'll, I'll seek them out. And, oh, I do also, this is also a book by a friend, um, and I didn't I didn't read it recently, but um, it is one that has stayed stayed on my mind. Um, Rachel Kong's Goodbye Vitamin, um, which I think got a, a, quite a bit of press um, when it came out in I want to say 2017, um, but is 
it's just a book. It's a book that I think about a lot. Um, her, the care that she takes with language, um, is something that I really respond to. Um, I, I love that book. Um, was very happy that it got such such great attention. Um, I'll put in a plug for Framing Britney Spears, which I think is a really great little documentary. Mm. Um, I'll, I'll put in uh, a plug for The Tale of Princess Kaguya, which is a Studio Ghibli movie, but oh. not a Miyazaki movie. Yeah. It's um, directed by Isao Tak- Takahata who's the the other the other half of Studio Ghibli um and I did I'll say that I'll say I'm not I'm not a fan of everything that that um Guy Madden uh does but I I watched The Forbidden Room recently yeah and good that will just take you right out of real life The Forbidden Room is that is that movie for sure <laughs> okay that, that <laughs> sounds great yeah it's 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 wormholes inside of wormholes is how I will describe it. And it features, um, uh, it features a little bit written by John Ashbery. And it also features this oh, wow. ludicrous song called the last derriere. And <laughs> I am, it, it took me so long to, to think of this dumb joke, which is why didn't they call it the dernier derriere? <laughs> Indeed. Why did they not? But, um, that seems like a terrible mistake. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but that gave me, you know, what that did is it took me, it took me out of myself, and that has been that has been really necessary. Yeah, I, I think that um, this podcast even is is that for me, and it has um, continued to be wonderful to hear what other people are are finding to to be able to lift out of themselves a little bit at this particular moment. Well, Miranda Popke, thank you so much for talking to me today. It was a delight. Again, thank you so much for, for reaching out and inviting me. Um, this has been a real pleasure and, um, yeah, again, uh, grateful and, uh, grateful and excited. Thank you so much. My thanks to Miranda Popke, whose recommendations you will find at our website, burnedbybooks.com, where you can find links to the previous shows. I'm in a state of shock about the next episode, when I'll welcome Ruman Alam, author most recently of Leave the World Behind, a National Book Award finalist. I've been a huge fan of Ruman's work since his debut novel, Rich and Pretty, and I have no doubt he will be a fantastic interview. You won't want to miss it. Until then, leave a review at iTunes Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podbean. Your words and stars will grow this audience. This has been Burned by Books. Burned by Books.